Welcome to the K2 Sales Podcast. I'm your host, Karen Kelly. Every week, I'll be sitting down with a sales executive where they'll share their stories and experiences that produce game-changing results. Let's be honest, sales can be a tough game. I'm sure at some point, you've all delivered a less than stellar demo, been ghosted by a client or two, and sometimes, maybe we did more talking than listening. And that's where I can help. The stories and insights our guests share can be applied to your own business, your territory, or with your team, so you're not reinventing the wheel. Our weekly tactics and strategies help you get out of your head and start creating your own path towards game-changing results. Welcome back to the K2 Sales Podcast. I'm your host, Karen Kelly. Now, with 2023, we have some competition. We have chat GPT. We have, um, you know, just sales cycles extending. We have budgets tightening. And the the need for hyper-personalization in our outreach has never been more important than it is now to really get um, get, get our buyers' attention and, and even more so know who our buyers are. Are we targeting the right people? And so I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Leslie Vanetz. And Leslie's the founder of Sales Team Builder. She's LinkedIn's voice of 2023. She's a fellow member of Women's Sales Pro. She has over 31,000 followers on TikTok. So this girl walks the walk and she talks the talk. And we talked about many things. Uh, We kind of (laughs) deviated down a few paths. But what we really talked about is how to, you know, how to attract and target our, our ideal customer and really looking at that word ideal, like what makes them ideal? And how do we create a list, what a list should look like? So we, we got really tactical because a lot of times people are just hitting the more, the, the sales leaders are asking you to hit more, more, more. But there's a there's a how element. It's like, well, how do I do this and what should it look like? So we went into, you know, what a sequence should look like, how many touches, the, a lot of prescriptive data that will really help you add value to your to your audience and really break through the noise and best practices and uh, highly encourage you as a sales leader to take a listen. And if there's anything that you can pull out and really share with your team, I would I would encourage you to do that. Any SDR, BDR, or AE that's listening, definitely you know look at your outreach, look at your cadence, look at the lists you're creating, and what can you take that Leslie suggested and put it into practice immediately. So maybe it's a modification. Maybe there's times you're abandoning the sequence and saying, oh, this just isn't working. And the recommendation here is just pause for a moment and say, well, what part of it? Like we, we were seeing traction. We were, you know, the open rate, the click-through rate was good. And it started pausing or slowing down here. And what was that? She talks about a, a, call, a light call to action. So more of a, you know, are you interested in learning more versus this hard, you know, book my calendar, asking for time too early. And so what could you change? What could you modify? Even the um, the length of the email, is it non-assumptive language? All these things that we don't need to abandon ship and just end it right away. It might might be a slight tweak and we might be onto something. So we, we talked about really A-B testing. So definitely take a listen to this. As always, let us know what you think. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast or left a review, we would love to hear feedback and hear what we're doing well, what we can be doing differently. And again, any guests that you feel would be good for the podcast, please let us know. Like always, thanks for watching and we'll see you next time. So as we continue into 2023, most of us are still struggling to really break through that barrier. There's so much noise out there. We hear the, you know, the pitch slapping and the spray and pray, but yet we want to connect with our audience in a personalized, relevant, human way. And so what is that middle ground that allows us to do that? So 
Uh, I'm delighted to have Leslie Vanette back to the podcast to share her expertise and her wisdom in this in this really unique area that she's a specialist in. So Leslie, welcome back to the podcast. I'm so happy to be back, Karen. It is always a treat to collaborate with you. <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. Um, so what I find is there's, uh, as I said, like there's a lot of noise out there. It's very difficult to break through. And some people are just saying, just you know, do this and try this. And and while that might be great, what I wanted to do for the listeners today is really give them the how and break it down so that when they leave this, they say, okay, I know how to build a list. I know how to segment it based on, you know, firmographics or whatever they're looking at so that they can start driving results. And and where I want to start is I saw on LinkedIn this morning, you posted, you know, five areas where we can really personalize and break through. So I'm kind of going to take this as a framework. And for those who didn't see it, I'm just going to quickly share what they are. And the first one was understand your target audience, uh, provide value personalize your approach, build relationships, and use data to inform your decisions. So first of all, before we break these apart, why don't you you know, take a step back and walk us through like what prompted you to share this this morning? Yeah. So I, I think very high level, we too often hear that it's quality versus quantity. It is like personalization versus relevance. Um, and there's this narrative that somehow those things have to be like at odds. They're, they're mutually exclusive, which I reject. I know that to not, not be the case. Um, you know, like you said, it's, it's that, how, like, how do we meet in the middle? And that's where the best work gets done. And what inspired this post was how, like giving something actionable back. But too often what I see on LinkedIn are huge lists of don'ts. And I, I think that that can be a bit paralyzing. Like we, I, I, I think in general, I'm going to paint with the, with broad strokes, but I think most salespeople want to do good work. Most salespeople want to send emails that are valuable, relevant, personal, like that, that matter to their prospects. Um, but we so often are just given a post that's a list of everything to not do without the addition of the things that we should be focusing on, those action-oriented tips that we can take and put into to use today. Um, so I, I wanted to offer a bit of a counter to that. There's some don'ts in there that we should be aware of and that we should um, hold ourselves accountable to. But I, you know, I wanted to share some ideas of what does work as well. Yeah, I think that's a great point that, first of all, what, they're not mutually exclusive. Like We do need to find the middle ground. But there's all these don'ts and people are like, okay, that's good. But <laughs> like you said, well, what should I be doing then? Like give them the do's. And so understanding your target audience for me, I think that's hugely critical. And it, I, I read this morning, you know, organizations with a strong ICP achieve 68% higher win rate. So when you think about everything downstream about your value prop, you know, and your tonality and you're aligning with objections, <laughs> if you're talking to the wrong person, it doesn't matter. So why don't we start there? Why don't we start about the importance of understanding or identifying your target audience? Yeah, I mean, that, that statistic, 68% higher win rate. And I was actually uh, talking to Andy Paul um, about his book, Sell Without Selling Out, last night. Um, and he shared a statistic that was from I don't, Gartner, you know, some, some shop like that, um, that right now B2B SaaS only has a 17% win rate. So I, so, I mean, th these two statistics speak to a, a big gap, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
So I think it's a, a couple of things. I, I think when we look at earlier stage startups, oftentimes the founder or the founding team really, really gets their heart set on the product that they want to bring to market. And they don't then listen to the product the market wants them to, to mm -hmm. bring. Um, and I use that example because there's like ripples of that that we see even in the biggest organizations. Um, and then we like, you know, I think that we we build our ICP lists and we, we build out our territory based on who we think should be using our product, who we want to, to be using our product without, like one of the, the points on the do list was use data, make data back decisions without like really going deep into our data and saying, okay, here's actually the group of people that buys fastest. Here's the group of people that buys at the highest price points. Here's the group of people that is most likely to become a power user. Here's the group that it's most likely to renew. Like here's the group that never asks for a discount. Um, and to, to not just see this, this whole group of folks that we can sell to this, maybe this pool of qualified prospects, but to really understand who ideally is going to buy now, buy at the highest price point, be a good customer and renew. That's a bit mm -hmm. more complicated. Well, I, I, yeah. And I think people are looking at the TAM and the TAM is way too wide. Right. But, but think about in ICP, the word ideal, right. And that's what that is. And that's what you've just listed out the fastest, you know, the ones who aren't going to ask for discount. Those are the least friction. Like those are the customers you want as well, because you know, they're, they're primed and you're primed, but it sounds like also that product market fit, what you were just saying about um, the founders and, and perhaps they're pushing their, what they perceive you know, their product. And I think that voice of the customer is so important. And when you think about Clayton Christensen's study of jobs to be done, and, you know, I don't know if you read the, the McDonald's study about like they actually wanted versus what the team was, you know, perceiving and it was completely off. And I think we do that as well. There's that subject, subjective or emotional, I bet you they would like this. And it's like, well, why don't we test it? Because we're investing all this time, all of this energy, but again, it's also our brand and if we're a startup or go, you know, early, early stage, like that first in market, like we've lost that advantage, right? So time is, is, you know, not on our side. So I think it's important to just what you said, factor all those data points out to really understand who truly is my ideal customer. Yeah. And, you know, if we're, we're talking about actionable bits, you, like you make a really good point from the founder perspective of like Tam, Sam, Sam, you know, like. TAM, like, which is your total addressable market versus qualified versus ideal. And I, I think there is a bit of a dichotomy because so often the founders are living in this world of TAM, 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 because they're trying to go for funding and that's what they need to, to focus on. But when we think about sellers, the, the you know, individual contributors, the sales managers listening to this, there is a whole opportunity here in terms of how we manage our own territories. Your founder might have an idea of who this pool of qualified individuals or your, you know, your ELT, your board, whoever is, is leading your shop. But don't let that be an excuse to not take ownership of your territory in a way that allows you to optimize your outreach for the folks that maybe it's like 
a, a perfect example is when I was at procurement leaders, which was my, my last role. It was a consulting shop before I, I moved to do my own thing full time. I knew that I was particularly strong at selling to financial services. Like it, it wasn't necessarily this like great ICP for the entire company, but mm-hmm. I, that was something that I was really strong on. So when I did a retro, I was like, oh, wow, CPG and financial services. That was the, I sold way more of them than my other, you know, like my, my other AEs, the other sales directors. This is clearly something I should continue to really focus on. So it was this opportunity to, segment my territory and build my list in a way that not only capitalized on trends we were seeing across the sales force, but really capitalized on what I knew to be my core strengths and who I could close fastest and without offering discounts. Mm-hmm. I love that. So even though the directives are you know going left, you can look at your own past successes and say, hey, you know, why did I specifically achieve success in the financial or CPG or devices or whatever it is, and then kind of go back and look at what are the trends? What are the patterns there? Was it, was it all, was I talking to all CMOs? Was it, they were all having that same challenge. And I think people don't do that. They're always trying to reinvent the wheel. And I always, you know, suggest go back and look at like why people bought from you in the first place and really do that activity from their standpoint, like what was important to them. And, and how did you achieve that? So it's not like, because if you look at it through your lens, what's important to me without looking at it from the customers, what's important for them, there's a complete disconnect and your message is so seller focused. So just what you said, go back to where you were successful and look at, you know, what it, what they, what they were able to do after and also before, what problem were they having that, you know, the reason they engaged with you in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that that's in, incredible uh, advice. Um, and I would add to that, get on calls with the customer success managers. <laughs> I think my entire career that has been an incredible key to my success um, is that I didn't just listen to why people bought. I listened to why they renewed or why they bought again. Because there is, I mean, there is like gold in those hills to be able to really understand um, not just that initial challenge that that major prospect think you know, this is worth spending some time and money on to see if they can help, but why it worked, like what what actually made it work, what were those benefits that they truly experienced, what made them feel like they should spend more money and more time in the future, um, because that ends up being the like what the core of your message should be to future prospects. Yeah, I I love that. And it's just, um, especially in the SaaS world, think about renewal with those conversion rates so low. It's like, well, what's what's it going to take? Why are they renewing? So again, we can pull those reasons why and Mm -hmm. lead with them, you know, in future in future prospecting. So if I were to summarize, you know, what I'm hearing, Leslie, is two things. One is, you know, if the sales leader is kind of saying go right, listen to your own gut. And if you feel going left is going to serve you, go left. Um, also look at past successes that might be unique to you versus your team. You saw it in financial services and CPG. What about for those, if we're create a third lane, for those who are just, they, they don't have either of those and they're just looking to start. They're part of a team and they're just saying, well, like, how can I start building a list here? What, what would you say to those folks? Yeah. So first I would say um, go left, but don't go left and then like go off road. 
<laughs> because I don't think that that's going to get you the outcomes that that you want, or at least before you go off road, have a conversation with your you know your your sales leader to help them understand why you want to pursue a different territory management or outreach strategy. I don't want I don't want my advice to be getting people fired. Um, <laughs> but for folks that are just starting. Um, I like to deeply, deeply segment um, my territory, and that is how I build lists. And the result might be lists that are 13 people, 27 people, 18 people. They, they you know, are often these very small lists. Um, and so what that might look like, a good example would be um, a, you know, a financial services firm. So we have an industry that is over six billion in revenue. So we have a revenue band mm-hmm. um, that has a CFO that's less than a year in seat. So we have a job title and like a quasi trigger event, but we're not trying to do the trigger event where we're like, congratulations on your new role that was one day ago. Let me pitch something generic to you <laughs> and then pair it with a trigger event. And so maybe it's something like, um, they just issued their first like environmental societal governance, their first ESG report. So like the trigger event is the ESG report. And so that's what you're going to focus your messaging around is some sort of, you know, value prop related to that. But you know, you are speaking to CFOs that are new in seat from multi-billion dollar financial services firms. So you're, you're building layers of specification into these lists. And the result is you can create extremely targeted, extremely relevant messaging that allows you to create some of that balance between hyper-personalization at every single touch point, which takes so much time and generic spammy outreach. And that balance is a you know an, an opportunity to personalize at scale. And the scale isn't sending it to 200 people, the scale might be sending it to 25 people, but you create the copy one time, you make it exceptional, you make it valuable, you make it relevant, and then it's going to work for 25 people. So I think I think that's the balance and that's one of the reasons that I love focusing on, on building in lists that have at least, you know, like three to five layers of specificity. Mm-hmm. I love that. Thank you for, for going deep there, Leslie. And I think a big misconception is people, when you said like 13, 18 or 27 in a list, I think people think I had to have 500 or a thousand. So I'm guessing that's new for those listening. So, and, and, and so what's, what's great about that is that you still have layers that it's still going to have the impact that even if you're sending it to 25 people that they feel that it was sent to just them because their triggers are so unique versus, oh, all CFOs, you must be facing this. Well, no, hang on. This is CFOs that are less than a year. And so I feel like the layers are what allow you to personalize. And you probably just said that, but I guess the the lights are coming on for me too. And and because I was always of the mindset of, you know, you can't scale at, um, you can't personalize at scale. But, that, but at a thousand people, no, you can't. But like when there's a small group like that, you can still have one copy but really get people's attention because of the select, how you select those layers. Yeah, 100%. And 
and you know, I think that 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 example was maybe more relevant to AEs. But even if you look at at our sales dev folks who are maybe given a much smaller territory, maybe they're only managing two hundred accounts at a time. I still think there's an opportunity to go through those accounts and look for trends. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it's. Um, like one that I like to use is awards. So maybe it's like the, you know, top 100 brands that did this and you go through and you look in your territory to see who's, who's won that award. And so Mm -hmm. you can like, you know, just start building in those layers and they might not be very obvious at first. And they, they, like the layers might not exist within your CRM because if all you're doing is creating a list that's like, um, you know, click filter 1000 plus employees, like click filter VP level and above, like, sure, that's better than nothing. You are Mm -hmm. creating segmentation, but you're not going quite far enough to create the level, to create enough layers of segmentation that like your final list you can be sure your your copy is relevant to. Mm-hmm. And so what I would say there is for sales leaders listening, there's an opportunity for them to say, like, think beyond the scope of your CRM, right? And just say, how can we as a group, here's a great brainstorming activity, what triggers can we come up with so that we can all use them? And then even talking about data, report back what one's yielding a, a good response or they're actually clicking or they're doing something that says, okay, we're getting traction with this. So I think the whole thing is team involvement because when they're doing this, they're immersing themselves. They're, they're in the language of their customers. And that's where we can um, show them that we understand what's actually going on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like something I was just thinking of that is slightly adjacent uh, is even little distinctions between sending an email that's like, Hey, Karen, I saw you attended our recent webinar which is don't do that, Um, but do send an email that's like, hey, Karen, most most clients that attended our recent webinar told me their number one challenge right now is, so show that you understand, like you don't just say a thing, you attended a webinar, that is lazy personalization. You show that deeper understanding of, why they made time for that webinar, what they might be struggling with that they were hoping to pull out of that webinar. And you immediately build so much credibility into your messaging. And so that's like, that's a pretty easy list to get, right? Like a list of everybody that attended the webinar. And then you look at that list and say, okay, for, you know, folks that were maybe at X revenue threshold, like this is where they were really focused or, Um, you know, individuals that were in the like medical devices space, this is where like, you know, this is what I know really matters to them. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you have 200 webinar attendees. And instead of sending them all this generic message, that's like, hey, I saw you attended our webinar, you know, maybe break it down into eight smaller groups. Mm -hmm. Then an opportunity to, to create a set of messages and then tweak it a little bit for each of those eight groups so that the probability that you're putting something in their inbox that's meaningful, you know, increases pretty dramatically. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I, and I, unfortunately I do see a bit of laziness happening there where they have a list of 200 It's easy to get cause they all signed up, but like segmenting it so that what I think it does is it, it 
allows them to feel validated. Like, yeah, like, and heard without, like, basically you're coming into my brain and saying, this is what people like you are facing. You're like, yeah, that's exa- that's why I signed up. So I, I think you're get you're achieving that because you've done a little work. And yeah, get 200 and break it down into eight and say, so I think that's great. Let me ask you this. Once you're sending that first message, Leslie, is it a deposit? Are you putting a call to action? This is part of a, ca- a sequence or what, what, how are they ending this first message? Yeah. Um, so my, my methodology for outbounding is earn the right. So that's what I really center in. Like, am I earning the right to put this message in their inbox? Am I earning the right to their attention to read it? Am I earning the right to, to time in their calendar? Um, and I think that's probably one of the reasons that people get rubbed the so like the wrong way so easily by like lazy webinar follow-up. Cause it's like, I already gave you an hour of mm-hmm. my time. Like I gave you an hour of my time and this is, this is the best you could do in response. Mm-hmm. Like that is, that is frustrating if you put yourself in the buyer's shoes. Um, so first message should be part of a sequence, a sequence being that like, you know, stackable set of different parts of, of outreach, different, you know, channels, different types of, of communication. Um, I do not include any, um, email called email outreach. I don't include any links or videos or anything like that. Any images and email number one, um, because I found that it really has a negative impact on deliverability because our domains have not spoken to each other yet. So you are just a lot more likely to get flagged as spam and then you sabotaged your chance to get into their inbox for the, for the rest of it. Um, so email one is a, a time that I do suggest hyper-personalizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me make the distinction between personalization and hyper-personalization because I, I think it's important and I think it's something that is really easy to get wrong. Because as sales managers, we so often go to our team and we say, you know, insert personalization token. And so they they do. But the personalization token is, I saw that you're the founder at Sales Team Builder. I saw you recently read a white paper. Like mm-hmm. I saw that you went to the University of Montana. And though to be fair, <laughs> that is technically personalization, right? Um, and I, I think that we so often in the industry, like don't take the time to explain why personalization works from the perspective of the individual receiving it, like what it feels like to receive an email that says, hi, Leslie, I see you're the founder at sales team builder. And it's like, no, like no crap. I, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's the title I gave myself. And then I put it on my LinkedIn and you copied and pasted it. Um, versus how it feels to get an email that says, hi, Leslie, I saw your recent post on five B2B do's and don'ts. And it really resonated with me. And then having that segue into something that, that ties to that post, something relevant that you can offer them or, or, you know, a deposit that you, you want to make another insight that you want to share. Um, so first don't include like links, videos, anything's for deliverability, Two, personalize this first email, but really make it count, make that personalization hyper-personalized and make sure that it ties to whatever you're going to say next. 
So it really has to be authentic, like authentic personalization, not like a check the box activity. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where, you know, these templates come in and it's like insert here. And, you, and if the template is a hard left, <laughs> then the message is going to be very cold, uh, very seller focused. And so I think also like this is where we got to be mindful of what are we pulling up and where are we getting these frameworks from? Because if it's insert name here and then problem here, there's no connectivity, there's no cohesion. And that first line just goes into that abrupt next. And it just like you might have started to do it and then you just piss them off. And you think that was your first chance. So when they see you coming in and, and message two, guess what? Like you're going to junk mail. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, our, our prospects are smart. Like they can yeah. smell a sales email. Yeah. They know what's going on. Yeah, they do. And, and this is where a uh, will all read from lavender is so good because, you know, I remember he was saying like, you always want your email to look like it was from some, and it's an internal email. Like it doesn't scream, you know, 10 X and we give you this free thing. Like, I just think when I worked in corporate, like I would never get that. So how can you make it, um, that it's not screaming this, you know, flaming, um, you know, sales email that's going to get people's backs up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am pretty reticent about putting that type of ROI language in my emails, Um, not only because it seems salesy, but a lot of that also triggers spam filters, Mm -hmm. putting anything like number one or best or 100% um, that that's going to tip off your spam filters straight away. Um, But you used a phrase at the top of our conversation that is one of my favorite phrases and something I love to root um, that type of ROI language in without like saying meaningless ROI stuff. And it is voice of the customer Mm -hmm. telling a story about a similar customer who faced a similar challenge. And then here is the outcome. Would it be worth learning how we can do that for insert company name? That's Mm -hmm. a great email. And that email can get sent to everybody that that applies to. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love, well, it's just the before and after, right? And how can you paint a picture where they see themselves in the before? And this is where I find most people don't do and, and they go to the, the, the after and it's like, but they haven't acknowledged yet that there's a problem or they're that before state is unsustainable. And so it's like, how can you paint it that that's that black and white picture before they get the HGTV? And so I, I, I think that's great. And that can be a, an email outreach. It's also a great conversational where you can inflect and you can add emotion with your tonality and really create that connection. I think it's great and very powerful as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of voice of the customer. I was actually joking. Um, I was on a call with the folks at hype cycle earlier today. Um, and, uh, Julia, one of the co-hosts was asking me like how I came up with my earn the right methodology. And I, I shared that a couple of years ago, I was sort of looking around the, you know, kind of LinkedIn expert and creator space and all these people I really respected had these acronyms and frameworks and methodologies. And I was like, wow. And then I was thinking one day, well, they just made all of it up. I, <laughs> I should make it up too. And one of the, like, maybe the very first thing I made was uh, an objection handling framework, a 3V objection handling framework. And the middle step was using voice of customer because it is this incredibly powerful tool to, to replace, I think, or we say, which just that, that feels icky and persuasive, mm-hmm. but like, I, I get it. 
um, Bob shared blah, blah, like, and you, and you get this opportunity to use the, the words and the emotion and the reality that your customers are facing to communicate, um, in a way that like centers your customer instead of centers yourself and your company. And I just, I love voice of customer. It's so powerful. Um, and oddly like underutilized. Mm-hmm. And, and think about even when you buy or you're kind of on the fence and they're like, you know what, Leslie, I was just talking to another girl in Chicago and she was around your age and, and you just paint a picture and you're like, she went for it. <laughs> okay. Like you just sometimes need that social proofing that's relevant. And you're like, even at a restaurant, I, I'll say like, what, what's my husband's like, what's, what's, uh, you know, moving in the, in the drafts. And I'm like, what's your top seller? Like what, what are people, cause we want that safety and like, how can you reduce the risk that you've helped others like us? And so, yeah, I, I think it's important it's, it's hugely important. And like, like you say, it's underused. Yeah. There was some really interesting research from Forrester that, um, came out, uh, in the past couple of weeks. And one of the, the sort of strap lines was that fear of missing out is now replaced with fear of messing up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, anybody that's been in sales for, for, you know, more than a year knows how much decisions are dictated by fear fear of the wrong spend or doing the wrong thing or having the wrong focus. Um, and I, I just, I thought it was so powerful to think about voice in the customer voice of the customer in that framework. Cause we are so afraid of messing up, but, and like no salesperson by saying like, well, I think you're making the right choice or like, I promise it's going to be great is, is going to overcome that fear. But telling me, oh, you know, I've already sold 17 of the pork chops tonight. Like everybody's been raving about them. I'm like, okay, all right, pork, pork chop feels safe. That feels like a safe bet. <laughs> or like, you know, Susan shared a similar concern. And, um, you know, it frankly, it took us a couple of weeks to like, like really get onboarded and get into the, the meat of the challenge. But now six months later, this is where she's at. And you're like, okay, that's relatable. Mm -hmm. That feels fair and honest. Um, so, you know, I think there is like, we are as humans, so resistant to being sold to, to being persuaded, to feeling like we're being manipulated and voice of the customer is a very powerful way to allow people to come to their own decision without us, like, you know, being a little bit too forceful and trying to push them the direction that we hope they're, they're going to go. Yeah. And, and I think it's a fine line. And just what you shared, the Forrester, that it's, um, you know, Matt Dixon and Ted McKenna, the jolt effect and that FOMO versus FOMU. And, and I think what they're suggesting there is, you know, offer a recommendation, but you're doing it through the lens of, you know, you're, you're still saying like, I'm not telling you to do this. I've, I've understood what your, your problems are and I'm kind of giving you some options here. So you're making the recommendation, but you're also basing it off social proofing, right? But you're that messenger. And so I think in some instances, people need, they need help. Like they really, if they knew they would do, but they don't. And so the first thing is you have to, they have to trust you because if I'm the salesperson that's totally commission focused, they can feel that a mile away. So it's like, I can make my recommendation, but it's completely self-driven. And I, I know I'm going to close this and make 30%. The old commission. Totally. Breath. And so I think it's offer your recommendation, but you're saying, look, well, from what you share, like, I don't think you need this. Why don't we start with, you know, three licenses, um, get some successes on the board. You can share that. So it's still offering a recommendation, but you're not doing it 
in like the, you know, the grandiose is like, I'm just, I'm just trying to help you achieve the goal, but why don't we just start smart knowing that FOMU is what's holding the back, not FOMO anymore. And even from that book, he said, when you go back and you re you try to readdress FOMO and it's not that like 84% of the time the deal dies, but that's the only card we've ever known. So it's actually better to do nothing. Yeah. Uh, oddly, some of the best referrals that I've ever gotten have been from prospects that I wouldn't sell to. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I mean, man, I, I, I'd love to work with you. Like you're awesome. But based on what I've, what I've heard from you, based on where you're at mm -hmm. in this journey with your team, whatever it is, like, I am not the right choice for you today. I might be in the future, mm -hmm. but like today, I, I think that you should stick with your current vendor. Cause it seems like frankly, for the price point, they are doing the, the a good enough job or actually let me recommend you know, Karen and Julia, because they, they have a, a, you know, a bit more of a focus on this thing. Um, and then so often those folks come back mm -hmm. to either become clients later, or they, they say my name in rooms I'm not in mm -hmm. because I, they trust me. They trust that I, that they can refer somebody to me and I'm not going to manipulate or like scam or, you know, whatever terrible terminology is associated with salespeople. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, there's like a cool power in that. Like it kind of sucks in the moment because you're like, oof, really, really <laughs> want to hit my accelerator this year. Um, but there is like, that is, I think one of the things that makes like the profession of sales mm -hmm. rewarding as a, as a profession. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it shows you have integrity and it's like, you have to put their desires above yours. You really do. And I remember doing a post on that because I've been in that instance too. But like you said, what better way to build trust knowing that you've actually turned them down. Like, like, like this problem is not happening frequent enough or these guys are great. Like I'm not going to be that much different. So it's not worth the change management like that, that comes back in, in droves. And as you said, if it's not them, it's a referral because I know you weren't just trying to sell me something. And that's a pattern interrupt because most salespeople are just, you got a round hole. Well, I got a square peg. We'll just shave the corners off and we'll try to get it in. I'm like, no, it's not going to fit. So and it's, it's hard. And I don't like, to be fair to our, our fellow salespeople, it's, it's usually not their fault. Like they don't want to sell that way. Mm -hmm. Like they know it feels a bit icky, yeah. but they either have, have never seen or been taught mm -hmm. another way to sell that that is another narrative or which I think is often more common um they don't want to sell that way they they want to try something new but they're getting this intense pressure from their management to be more aggressive more assertive make more calls like push for somebody to come in this quarter mm -hmm. um and, you know, I, I think that's probably why our profession has, you know, so, so many issues with retention. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's like, I, I think it goes back to like the beginning of the, the sort of conversation that I think salespeople, broad strokes here, generally want to do good. Yeah. Like they want to do right by their prospects. They don't, they don't want to feel icky doing their jobs but they don't have either the like the training and the skill sets to execute on that or they don't have the the leadership or the freedom within their role to be the type of seller 
that gets like not just that deal done in the moment that mm-hmm. like really probably shouldn't have get, gotten done, but gets, you know, the, the consistent set of deals that are closing faster, you know, closing at the right price points without discounts that are renewing, that are becoming power users, that are becoming testimonial um, givers. And that is like, I mean, if I was a founder, I would much rather have the type of rep that gives up a deal in the moment mm-hmm. in favor of, to long, you know, longevity of deals. But, you know, I also know like having, having been responsible, having a number against my head, that that's a hard situation to be in sometimes. Mm -hmm. No, I I hear that. And and I, you know, sales leaders, sometimes that's what they're doing. Right. And again, the mandate's coming from above. Right. And so there, that message is, is just pushed down. But if you feel sales reps, especially junior ones, just entering in sales and they don't have a point of reference and they're just pushing and it feels wrong. Like that's, that's who you are as a person. Like sales is not like, this is who I am as sales. This is who I am as life. If that's wrong, that is going against your value system. And so when you, when you ask people, do you want to get into sales or would you ever try sales? They're like, no, that's why. Cause they perceive that that's what they have to do. And it's like, no, that's, that's totally not what it is, but it's like, how can we shift that mindset or, you know, that, that approach from sales leaders that say like, I'm going to forego the short-term win to get the long-term because I can get this across the line. But the chances of renewal and churn are so high. And so it's like, what would you rather have? And probably that's adding to why the tenure of a sales leader is 18 to 24 months as well, because they're hitting this year and there's no next year. Yeah. Yeah. I, one of the things that I always say when I'm coaching folks is that it's okay if it feels uncomfortable because mm-hmm. we are you know, putting ourselves out there. We're getting rejected. We're maybe trying something new by cold calling or sending a video message. So it is okay if you are pushing gently against your boundaries and it feels uncomfortable, but it should never feel icky. No, no, definitely, definitely not. Which uh, is something I frankly wish somebody would have told me at the beginning <laughs> of my career because I definitely did some things early on in my career that looking back, I'm like, wow, like I really went, like I, I didn't listen to my gut. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't stay true to my values and my morals because I was being told this had to get done. I had to do this. Um, and I listened to that external force instead of my internal compass Mm -hmm. and made some missteps as the result. So those listening, you know, like you said, listen to your gut. And, And I can say, you know what, now, I'm not saying, oh, look at me, I'm perfect, but I, I, I didn't do that. But what I did do is I saw others do it. And I remember in the room going, what did you just do or say? Like the customer and I were almost looking at each other going, like speaking with our eyes going, did he just really say that? I know him and I are in the same team, but I'm like, that's gross. And, and so I couldn't even hide. So I was like, I am not saying that. But when my team member just said it, I just threw up a little bit in my mouth. And I can't hide that feeling. So no, don't do that. And like you said, customers are smart and they're not going to be like, if you're doing things like that, like your reputation, your brand, beyond the the company, they're looking at you as a person and saying, Leslie, did you just ask me to do that? Like, no, you know, it's not yeah. right. And you only get one professional reputation, yes. right? Like jobs will come and go, mm-hmm. deals and customers will come and go. We only get one reputation. So if, if of all things to protect, like yeah. that, that is the top of oh, my totally. list. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, listen, we started on uh, email one. 
<laughs> we deviated a little bit. <laughs> down the rabbit hole. <laughs> I see rabbits or some squirrels and foxes down here too. <laughs> I Yes, I know. Sometimes I feel like I am um, the dog Doug from the movie Up. He's like, hi, my name's Doug. And then he sees a squirrel. He's like, squirrel. Um, it very, very much replicates um, how my brain uh, starts moving when I start talking about something like sales and cold outbound uh-huh. um, because it's, it's, it's a, it's a, cause I'm passionate cause it's a fun and wonderful profession. Um, but email one should be part of a sequence, meaning a set of events Um so thinking, bringing it back to actionable, um, I'm a huge advocate for a three channel approach. Uh, and so the channels that we see most often are phone, email, and social, usually a LinkedIn touch point. I guarantee there's at least one person listening right now that is saying in their head, but Leslie, my prospects aren't on LinkedIn or my prospects don't answer the call. First and foremost, I'm not sure I believe you. But (laughs) it is worth testing, like test that three channel approach. And if after testing it, you realize that LinkedIn or phone or email, whatever it is, is sort of a zero sum game, remove it. But I would also challenge you to replace it with a different channel or to get more creative with your channel. So maybe you're not having success with like email or LinkedIn, but all you're sending is messages try gifts, try videos, try voice notes. Maybe you are uh, not having success with cold calls, mix up the type of voicemail that you're leaving, which you should never leave voicemails asking for a call back. They should always, always point to another touch in your sequence. That's the purpose of voicemails. But maybe replace a voicemail with a text message Mm -hmm. and see what happens. So before, you know, I think you, I don't know if, I think we were maybe pre-show when you said this, but like, People will try something and it won't work. And then they'll just like cut and run. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. Like A, B test, get creative. And if at the very end of that, you still say to yourself, the three, the common channels of, you know, the, the social email and phone call don't work. I would still challenge you to think about another touch point. And maybe that is a handwritten note. Maybe it is gifting. Maybe it is leaning into your marketing flywheel and trying to get folks to a webinar when the webinar becomes another touch point with your organization. Uh, I, I, the, I think that like the, the basis of it, and this sort of goes back to my earn the right methodology is that we really owe it to our prospects to meet them where they're at. And there is a bit of a, I don't know, it's like a bit of a kind of s- like snotty narrative that's going on. It's like, I only sell on LinkedIn. I'm a LinkedIn. I only do LinkedIn. Um, and that's awesome that like, you're so good at LinkedIn, but you're missing out on a bunch of your prospect pool because they're not on LinkedIn or maybe they're on LinkedIn, but that's not where they prefer to communicate with you. And so you're missing this opportunity to like, create a better, stronger, faster connection with them. And I think that's a particularly important point as we are, you know, looking at a recession, depends who you ask, maybe we're already in it, Um, but, but budgets are going to get tighter. Leads are going to get sparser. 
And if you are limiting yourself to a single or even a dual channel approach, you, you will see your pipeline dry up. Um, so there's a very actionable piece of advice. Use three channels, get super creative with testing what works on each channel. And if the first three you try don't work and the creative approaches you try to, to see what else, you know, might, might catch attention within those channels don't work, then start swapping one out for a different channel to see, you know, to see what, um, you know, what your prospects respond to. Mm-hmm. I love that meet them where they're at, but if they're not, you know, if they're on Facebook, they're on Facebook, if they're on Instagram, I think you have to just know where they're at. So if, if people are saying, you know, I want to put this into practice and would you suggest lastly that they send an email they connect um, on LinkedIn and they send a voicemail or they're doing all these in tandem. Is there a, a, a frequency? Do you wait a day or two or what, what are your recommendations there? Yeah. Um, I am a huge advocate of a day one double tap, a double tap, meaning you do two touches on the first day. Sometimes I'll even do a triple tap. So if I'm doing a double tap, it is always going to be an email and a voicemail. Mm-hmm. Um, or an email and a LinkedIn invite mm-hmm. to connect. I often will do a triple tap and I will do a voicemail and email and an invite to connect. Like I know people are maybe recoiling in horror, <laughs> um, but like here is the brass tacks. We spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. Our prospects don't. Like it is highly unlikely that they're going to get that invite to connect the day that you yeah. send it. Um, and what's maybe even more important to remember is that you're not connecting and spamming them, mm-hmm. right? Like you're not soliciting them in this LinkedIn invite. Like it's a social platform. You're saying something like hyper-personalized and you're also saying something hyper-personalized, relevant and valuable in your first message. So it immediately becomes a lot less cringy when you think about messages that are like, authentic and meaningful and really rooted in that value and relevance for the buyer versus what I think people automatically go to. And I think about those connect and spam messages or those generic messages. Um, so I, I really like starting there. Um, and I do a minimum of eight touches in all of my cold outbound. Mm-hmm. Um, and so usually I will do like minimum, I will do an invite to connect. Um, and then I like to wait for a little bit to give them a chance to accept the connection request so I can send a message because in mails, just the efficacy of in mails is pretty low right now. So like I will send them if they didn't accept and that's where we're at in, in the touch. Um, but it's not, you know, that's not ideal. So at least those two LinkedIn touch points um, and four emails and two phone calls would be like my minimum minimum. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think, I think people are, I, I would agree there. They might be scratching their head initially saying, wow, but I see what you're saying is that they're not on LinkedIn. So it might be two or three days, but what they're also doing is they're seeing Leslie Vanettes and they're seeing, well, where did I see that girl's name before? And then that voicemail. And so it's kind of, because I think the brain scans are like, where do I know this person? Oh, that was a girl that emailed me. And so it just kind of puts things into a, a pattern recognition. They're like, that's who that is. And I, I think most people now get this. Like I, I delete connection all the time because I'm like, I think this one might be safe. And then boom, it goes You're like, geez. <laughs> you know? And so when you are different and you send a voice just saying, you know, thanks for connecting, look forward to being part of your network or something completely different. They're like, what a breath of fresh air. I'm not... 
I'm not like everybody else. And so it's the bar is pretty low right now to stand out because there's so much spamming going on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's like, I, I mean, I, I agree with you. The fastest way to get blocked from my network is to send me an invite to connect. And I err on the side of accept usually like in, unless something looks really sus, like suspicious, I will, I will accept it. Um, and if you come into my inbox that same day mm-hmm. with a generic pitch yeah. blocked immediately, Bye-bye. like I don't, I don't have time for that. I know. Um, that's fine. You can still follow me and hopefully you'll learn something about what to do differently <laughs> next time. But like, so I won't block them. I will unfollow them yeah. and I'll remove them as a first degree connection. Uh, cause it's, I just don't have space for that. Um, but yeah, and I think that also goes to the, like, be creative in your approach. Like somebody accepts your connection request and like send them a silly gift back mm-hmm. that like doesn't have, you know, that like doesn't have any pitching at all in it. Yeah. Just create some levity and show that you're human and you're not like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think it's great. I think that's great. So you're going to say minimum eight touches. So let's just, if we're kind of following a sequence, we've, uh, we've taken a multi-channel approach. You've suggested three, the phone, email, and LinkedIn. Now we get, they're, they're, they're coming back and forth. So there's engagement back and forth. We've got their attention. We've struck a chord. So walk us through kind of what we should be doing next. The dream. So they have replied to a message. Mm-hmm. Is that where we're going? Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> well, first off, congratulations <laughs> for having written a message that was opened and you got a positive reply to it. You're tracking in the right direction, team. Um, I love this question though, Karen, because people botch follow-up so hard. Um, and I get why it's because we spend this enormous amount of time talking about our cold outbound messaging. And then we spend no time talking about how to follow up. Um, Okay. So I would say some of the biggest mistakes that I make, that I see people make in follow-up is that they um, do like an information dump, Mm -hmm. right? You've seen it. I'm sure folks listening have seen this where, where you're like, sure, I'd be willing to learn more. And they're like, here's 72 links. (laughs) And you're like, "Okay." okay, cool. Right, right, right. Um, I see that a lot. Um, I, I see another version of it that is like so close to getting it right, but not quite, um, where they will share one resource back, but it's a, like a really big resource. And it's like, okay, you're so close because I said I was interested. And then you responded with like, amazing like, here's this white paper that we released with blah, 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 that speaks to this challenge. But it is highly unlikely that I am going to open and read a 20-page white paper. So if you just take one more sentence to say, and based on my research, I think that you're going to find the case study on page 12 especially valuable. Or, you know, like based on the what, what you shared above, make sure that you skip to page 17 for the insights there, because that's, that seems to be exactly what you're, you know, you're, you're dealing with. So making it just a little bit more prescriptive and easier for them to, to get that value and like get to the next step. Um, so like headline there, stick with the same best practice that you're using in your email, which are simple words, simple, short sentences, three to five sentences total. Um, so you still want your follow-ups to very much be in that same framework, 
And I think that that kind of gets lost because people are so excited. Somebody replied. <laughs> um, and then I would say, ask a question. Like, I think we also sort of get assumptive in our follow-ups that we know why they said they would be willing to learn more or talk to us or that they were interested. Um, so stay curious and, and make sure that that follow-up includes a question that allows you to gain a deeper understanding of what's important to them and allows you to, to start that process of illuminating the challenges that they have, some of which they might not even be aware of or like aware that there is a solution to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's great that illuminating um, a challenger, just inviting them to consider the way they're doing, you know, again, jobs to be done. And so what is the ultimate goal after that? Like, at what point can we say, like, well, does it make sense to jump on a call here? Like, I feel like we've gotten enough, you know, and so would you say that that is the next step? Yeah, pr pretty early. Um, I build CTA lights, like L-I-T-E, CTA mm -hmm. lights, um, into my sequences really early. And so um, a CTA light can be any ask, but at the very beginning, they're usually an ask for them to do something that is mostly a deposit. So like the ask is that they attend a webinar or open the white paper or go to my LinkedIn live because I'm already asking them to do something. It's a gift. I'm giving them something, but like that is still an ask. And then I'll escalate to CTA lights that are like worth learning more. Does this warrant a call? Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I'm not being like too aggressive with it. By the end of my sequence, if I see that they are, so let's assume in this case, they haven't replied but they are, they've, they're doing the things like they're opening the emails, they're clicking on the links. Maybe they've gone to the webinar. Uh, I will explicitly say, should like, should we talk about this over the phone? Mm -hmm. And like, I, I need that yes or no, um, or I'll include depend, depending, um, on how high the engagement was. I'll include my URL. Like, let's make it easy for them. Book, book right in. Like, we don't need to go back and forth setting up a time. Like, you know, based on like, thanks so much for attending the, the webinar, the number one thing that other, you know, financial services, VPs of HR said was valuable is X. Does it make sense to get on a call to go deeper into this? If yes, here's my booking link. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that's overstepping at all. No, I like the CTA lights because what I see is the time right away. And it's like you you haven't demonstrated value and you have not earned the right for time. And so I just think people that are doing that, if you're listening, you need to stop that immediately because you they don't know you. You haven't taught them anything. You haven't illuminated anything. And that's the currency we trade. So to give up someone's time, it's going to you got to earn it. Right. And it's going to take time. So if you're saying you have minimum eight touches like that's that's time that you have to invest to get that. And I just think about like, who am I giving my time to? Like, unless you've taught me something or show me something that, I, or help me see around the corner, I'm like, well, that was valuable. Like what else? Cause I'm thinking, what else can you help me do? Right. And so I think the time thing is we have to be mindful of that. Yeah. Like very, very much. Uh, I did a post a couple of months ago. Um, 
was maybe I couldn't sleep on a flight or something. I don't know what was going on, but I had some extra time on a flight and I went through like my most recent 100 uh, LinkedIn messages, like connect and spam messages. And I should find the post, but there were three fake phrases that were in like 90% of them. Of course, one of them was, I hope you're well, that, mm-hmm. um, but one of them was, um, can you make time for a quick 15 minute chat? Yeah. Like that statement, and you know, everybody that's sending it thinks that they've come up with this sentence that like, oh, like quick 15 minute chat. Like mm-hmm. it's just something quick, just a cute, cute little chat. Yeah. Um, but it's one of those things that was like, sure, probably two years ago when that template was introduced, that worked mm-hmm. like that probably really worked. Now that it's been used and overused for two years, that is a telltale sign that you are sending me a cold email. Mm-hmm. But the thing about even back where we started about our ICP, like I get that and they're selling me, you know, a caterpillar, you know, cabo- uh, like a con- piece of machinery. And I'm like, um, I'm not, I'm not your target audience. So, so like do the work, you know, so that at least if you've earned the right, like you and you follow the sequence, it actually does make sense. It's like dating. It's like, are we actually going to go out? Like we've been texting for months. Like I want to meet you. Right. And so that, that should feel organic and it should feel both parties are, are active participants. We both feel that we can take this to the next level. And that's a phone call, a zoom call or something. Correct. I I need to get something out of it. And like, I I think about it now often, like as a solopreneur with my own business in terms of value of my time. And so I need to, I'm either getting on a call because I want to give something as like a, as a gift, as a donation, not because I want to give you an opportunity to like mark up a meeting in your CRM Mm -hmm. uh, or I need to be earning money or I need to be learning something. And so if, if you are not going to teach me something on the call, then it's like quite the opposite that I think about what my hourly rate is. Not that I do hourly rate work, but like, I, you know, I know what it is. I have it in my head to mm-hmm. use for my billing. Yeah. I'm expensive. My time is expensive. Um, and I think it was like one of the realizations when I became a full-time founder, cause I've also outbounded with the C's like fortune 500 C-suite for most of my career. And I'm like, Oh wow. Like I can't believe I was as successful as I was getting the, you know, chief procurement officer of Pepsi to spend an hour with me getting like, like all these sexy titles and sexy brands. And then you think that their time is probably worth $5,000 an hour. Mm -hmm. And they gave me an hour of it. Like, Mm -hmm. dang, I really better show up Mm -hmm. prepared, prepared to, to tell them something they may maybe don't already know, like prepared to really earn the privilege of, of the time that they're giving me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so many of the, the podcasts I, I have and I, you know, I have a conversation with, the number one thing that comes up is that preparation. And, and just what you're saying, and I remember back in corporate, I would sit in my car after a meeting and I would ask myself two questions. Did I add value and would they have paid for that call? And if I didn't, I knew it. Like I wasn't phoning it and I'm like, Karen, you overspoke there. You didn't do that. And they probably, but then at least when I asked those questions, I'm like that they would have paid for it because I helped them do that or I exposed something or I brought something to their attention. Now they're doing something about it. So I think when you can just ask yourself and hold yourself accountable and really do the work, whether it comes to, you know, your email, like that first thing, really don't phone it in. So fine, you're given a template and everyone else is, you know, you've checked up, but like, how can you be different? How can you just say, I, I want to, I want to actually 
help elevate the profession. And to do that, like I have to just try a little bit more, maybe take 30 seconds more of customization, of digging deeper, of maybe, you know, when I Google the name, Google PowerPoint, Google Podcasts to see what they've done. So I'm just taking that one one extra step to really break through the noise and elevate yourself. And and I, I you know, when you're in sales, like there's money attached to that. Like if you want to hit your commission, you got to work for it. You're so right. And it, and it isn't, we're not telling like SDRs and BDRs to spend an hour researching before yeah. they send that first email. It is literally just taking those three to five minutes mm-hmm. to look one step beyond what's in your CRM mm-hmm. to find that, that podcast, that blog post, that LinkedIn post, that Twitter, like something that isn't that generic personalization, like something that, that goes above and beyond. And it, it makes sense. Like it ties to whatever you want to, to have a conversation about with them for AEs, depending on your price point. I mean, my, my prep when the, my average price point was like 52 ish K it was like 30 to 45 minutes of prep just for a discovery call. Mm-hmm. And it was like going deep on LinkedIn, going through financial reports, like looking at their 10K, looking at their CEO statements, Mm -hmm. looking through clients who I thought were similar to them to to like like have those voice of customer stories prepared, thinking about what objections they were going to, you know, potentially like bring up and have a couple ideas of questions I would want to follow up with knowing who on our customer advisory board they were connected, like, mm-hmm. like really deeply preparing um, to, to not waste any time on the call, having them tell me stuff that I should have been able to Google so that instead the entire call was, we were able to focus on like going deep yep. and then sharing, like you said, like that insight that, man, if you really nail it, it's, it's a call that they would have paid for. Mm-hmm. That's something that, um, did you ever read Jill Conrath's book, Snap Selling? I, I know of it. I have not read it. No. Okay. I just read it for the first time okay. last year. I was like embarrassed to tell people. They were like, <laughs> wow, it's like the quintessential like women in sales book. And I was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but that is actually one of the things that she shares. Like at the, the end of her book and it, the whole sort of premise is like our customers are frazzled. So we need to make it easy for them. We need to make it... Um, we need to like cut through the, the frazzled noise. Uh, and then that's one of the challenges at the end is that she's like, if, if your customers wouldn't pay $500 to have met with you, like for the insights that you shared in your meeting, mm-hmm. you probably did not try hard enough. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's easy to do it. I just a quick story with what you're saying. All those are amazing. And just thinking about, yes, like who's on the board, who's advisor, who's connected to who, like really thinking outside the box. But if you also are the incumbent, so you already have some business, you now have access. So how can you go in and go, you know, deep, wide and high? And I remember this account when I was in corporate and nobody, they kept on shuffling it to all these reps and nobody could close it. So they said, well, give Karen a shot at this. And I'm like, well, now, now I definitely have to okay. close it. <laughs> but like you talk about creative. I, it was like a detective and I was talking to all these people and I'm like, why can I? And 
you know, and I had to figure out, I went to all these departments, but this is what you can do, especially if you have access and you have an, a champion or you have a department you already talked to, how can you go and start learning to others and see, it's like a spider web, the connectivity here. And how is this initiative that you're working on, how does that influence there? And I ended up figuring it out. And I said, like, this is, it was like a sinking ship. If you don't fix this, like these are all connected. And I mean, that the CFO immediately said, like, he, he almost had to hush. He's like, okay, don't tell anybody this is happening. Where do I sign? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I, that is, that's the goal, folks. That is goals. But it was just like, it wasn't an option. And I think people don't take that level of, and first of all, you might not have access. So that was a specific situation. But if you do, or even if you don't, how can you be the dog on the bone? How can you just be after that scent and really be hungry for it? And I feel that that's... That, that's not there anymore. It's kind of like, well, you know, if I don't hit that, well, I've got a base, I'm okay. And I don't know, maybe I just have a different perception. And I was just like, I wanted to throw the, you know, just blast off all the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do think that younger generations have maybe better boundaries um, and they give fewer Fs about like constantly having to prove themselves and win this still. They're like, no, I'm going to show up and I'm going to do a great job. Yeah. But like, it's just a job. Um, and I think we, we yes. probably get part of why we get along so well is that, <laughs> uh, like my job is part of my personality and yeah. um, which was making anybody that's like Gen Z on the phone, like cringe right now, but like that's, that's, that's tax. <laughs> um, but I think another interesting part of it, and this is like totally a rabbit hole and we don't have time to go down it, but I'm going to say it anyways. And then maybe I need to come back for, for time <laughs> yeah. number three, um, is that, uh, I grew up in sales without a tech stack. Mm-hmm. And when I talk to some of the very, very best sellers, I know most of them, I would say the majority of them, um, spent their like formative first years in sales and organizations that did not have a robust tech stack. Mm-hmm. And so they, they simply had to flex those muscles more often. Like they couldn't just open their intent data provider and fo- like, so I think part of it is that we very early on in our careers trained our brains mm-hmm. to do that in more of a manual way. Um, and now it is so easy that it, it might be taken for granted a little bit. Yeah. No, you raise a great point. And I actually didn't consider that where I'm coming from. And, and I, same, same, um, generation I grew up with my tech stack was <laughs> email <laughs> and Siebel. We started with Siebel before Salesforce and I had to get creative. Like, especially when I was calling on competitive accounts, they didn't know me. And I just, and there was no selling. It was, what can I share? How can I educate them? How can I, you know, um, start building trust, start um, letting them know what else is out there. So when the time came, so I, I think those skills are, were very honed with me that we, because I had nothing to fall back on, it was me. And this was even before internet where they had to actually see me in a meeting. So it's like, if I'm meeting with you and I've gotten in my car, like something's coming out of this meeting, like I'm not going to drive here for nothing. Like I'm going to add value, but we're going to advance. We're going to get to that next step. And uh, it's, it's like when I would go to trade show and I'm like, I'm not leaving with like 20 names. It's like, take names, kiss baby, shake hands. We're making this, <laughs> we're, we're kicking butt, taking numbers here. You know, it's got to be purposeful. Yeah. I mean, now I'm like so spoiled with my tech stack. 
<laughs> I'm like, I can do this from bed. I, I don't even have to get dressed anymore. <laughs> I did a, um, like a, it was, it was inspired by a TikTok trend, but I did this cute video with Will Aitken, who was at sales feed and now he's at Lavender, um, uh-huh. where like we claimed a piece of the tech stack. And it was like, if the, the one person said it, then the other person couldn't have it in their tech stack. Um, and it was really, it was really funny because he claimed Canva, which oh, most people gosh, might be yeah. like Canva tech stack. And I gasped like, <gasps> I got nothing. Like how that. would I even function without Canva? I know. <laughs> but I it's, know. you know, I think it's, it's, it's easy to become, um, like reliant on the tech stack. And that's great. Like I save so much time and I am better at creating because I have Canva, but like, because I'm so reliant on it, I like, Karen, I, I genuinely don't know what I would do without it. Like I would just have to start like Googling like Canva replacements. I like, I, I don't even know where I would go with myself. Um, so it's, it's a blessing to have a robust tech stack. I'm, I'm not talking smack about our, our tech stacks and, and our companies spending money on us, but it does. The result is that you, you don't think intentionally about flexing those muscles, maybe in the same way that we did when we were coming up in sales. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the last point here I would say is that, um, we have tech stacks, but like, if you think about left brain, right brain, that's the structure, but we still have to add our creativity, our personalization, our human. Otherwise it's just tech. Then we're chat GPT. Like how can we still use them and leverage them and automate stuff, but just add, continue to add that human element to it. And, and I find that, you know, we got all these tech stacks and it's like, just shoot them off. It's like, no, 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 no. Like use, uh, insert your personality into that. And, and, you know, like, and just make the difference. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned chat GPT and, um, there's a company that I'm an equity advisor for called Reggie.ai. And I, I love the tool. I use it every day, but you hear not just about like Reggie, but you hear people kind of like, like complain about those types of tools. And they're like, well, I, I built a sequence and like, it didn't get any results. And I'm like, okay, like, well, like after you did the inputs and it created it for you, like, you know, what did you do before you sent it? And they're like, well, I just sent it. And like, you just sent (laughs) robot words to to people. You didn't, didn't put like a human lens on it. Um, And it's like this incredible tool that's such a time saver, but it's a time saver. It's not a replacement. Like the companies Mm -hmm. that, that use things like ChatGPT or Reggie or other tools like most effectively, they're using them to leapfrog mm-hmm. so that they can reduce the amount of time that they're spending on maybe low value or administrative tasks so that they can increase the amount of time they're spending yeah. on those like strategic, intentional, meaningful tasks. And that's when a tech stack becomes super, super powerful, not just to like do mm-hmm. more, send more bad messages, but to free mm-hmm. up time to, to be more intentional and spend more time on creating great messaging. This has been amazing. Um, and so I know people are going to want to know more because we kind of touched on the surface, but first of all, congratulations on so many things. LinkedIn's top voice of 2023. You know, that's unbelievable. You're over 31,000 followers on TikTok. You're a women's sales pro member and you just have so much going for you. And what, what I was just preparing for this, I, I just thought you show up unapologetically but you also show up 
vulnerable. And so I think that that combination just a really creates um, a human presence, which I like. You're not prepared to come to the table. You're, co- you're prepared to come and offer solutions, but you're also showing like sometimes, you know, I struggle with this too, and this is what I do. So I just feel you show up. You can have that what is it? Iron glove. Uh, no, what is it? Oh my God. Velvet fist iron glove. (laughs) Yeah. No, the other way, or is it the other way? Iron. Somebody has a glove. (laughs) Uh, iron, iron fist velvet glove. Yeah. Okay. That sounds right. And so you just Um, have that, like, like don't mess around, but I'm still human and I've been where you've been. So that's, that's what I wanted to say there. Um, that is, that's extraordinarily kind. Thank you for, for saying that it's, it's been a journey to like, come into my own voice, mm-hmm. um, and feel sure enough and, uh, safe enough to bring that version of myself to LinkedIn. Um, so thanks for noticing. Yeah, no, I, it's, this a sense of certainty there, but you know what it shows is like when you put yourself out there, you get rewarded and, and it's, it doesn't happen overnight. Cause you just said, when I feel safe and it, it takes you time to test and go like, how much do I want to share? And then realize, well, it's not about me anymore or as much because look who I'm helping along the way and look how many other people struggle with this and now find community and help with me. And you got rewarded for that. So I think those of the, who are listening who are perhaps apprehensive, afraid to put them out there, think about, you know, who you could be helping that you're, that you're not by staying safe and small and in your own head. Yeah. Yes, I, I agree. When I got the email about the uh, LinkedIn top voice for 2023, it was so oddly casual too, Karen. It was like, like, hey, would you have any interest in this? <laughs> I was like, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> like, I don't think I've ever replied faster to an email in my life. I replied in all capital letters. <laughs> I was so excited. Um, but it's, you know, I think often... It's like like years and years and years of hard work that makes it seem like I'm an overnight success, mm-hmm. but it it like it is very much a journey, I, and I'm sure a lot of folks are are in the middle of it right now. Where I didn't want to post at all because I was thinking, who cares? Mm-hmm. Like who who cares about what I have to say, or I don't have enough expertise, or like somebody that has more expertise is already talking about this, so why would I talk about the same the same thing? Uh, and it was really only a, about three years ago that I I had a bit of a an epiphany that like sure other people may be saying similar things, but I have a depth of expertise and experience, and maybe most important. Like I have my lens, I have my lived experience, mm-hmm. um, that uh, maybe allows me to communicate the same concepts or the same like stories, experiences in a way that hopefully touches other people's lives. So I encourage everybody to create content and build their personal brand. Um, but also, you know, recognize that it is a journey and like, you don't have to share things that you're not ready to share but there is something that you can share that like will teach somebody else that will help somebody else, no matter where you're at on the journey. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well said. So if people are looking to connect with you, Leslie, learn more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yes. Well, definitely find me on LinkedIn where I post daily. You can also find me on TikTok at sales tips 
talk. It is plural. And I also created my own micro community, which I'm pretty jazzed about. I was talking a lot about leaning into micro events and micro communities, and I felt like I should walk it like I talk it. Um, so I have a Patreon community for my business book club now. You can find us on Patreon backslash business book club. Um, and it's awesome. And check it out. I hope you'll join. <laughs> Amazing. I'm going to look it out because I love, I love, I'm an avid reader. So I'll have to check that out for sure. Well, thank you again for your insights. It was great talking to you and I'm so excited to meet you in person um, at the end of the month. <laughs> so soon. Yes, I can't wait. Thank you so much for having me, Karen. It's always a pleasure. My pleasure. And thanks for watching everybody and we'll see you next time.